the average person has never been on a prison yard. And when you're on a prison yard, like sometimes all the prisoners are out working out and you have to walk on the yard amongst those people because it's like just you and all these guys. And yeah, there are officers around. There's always officers around, but they tell you like, don't trust that because we're around that somebody's not gonna try to attack you. Here, Hollywood native, and you're about to watch another episode of Brian Lally, Hollywood native. I'm sitting here, as always, with my partner in crime, the main man, the reason why we got this whole thing started, Scott Williams. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? I am fantastic, never better. Now, who do we have on the show today? Brian, we have a great guest, Dr. Wiata. Dr. Wiata is a great guest. Dr. Wiata came from West Africa, Liberia, moved to the United States. Her family was caught up in the Civil War they had back there, but they had, they had got out. They were here. She went to the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, D.C., the same school that Dave Chappelle was at. But did she want to keep being an actor? No, she became a clinical psychologist and worked in the prison system. And she was helping people that really needed to be helped. But she's going to tell you everything about her whole life, and it's a very interesting story. And sitting next to me, when the show starts, will be Verity Van Dam. Be honest, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. So, uh... Let's start off with where you're from originally. Okay. Well, I was born in Liberia, West Africa, hmm. and lived there for 14 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And then I moved to the U.S. Don't ask me what year. <laughs> then I moved, <laughs> <laughs> I moved to the U.S. as a teenager, and I went to New York, and then D.C., and then so New York, D.C., then back to New York, and then L.A., then Fresno, then back to L.A. Oh, wow. Your parents traveled a lot for their work, or was it? Well, so part of it was New York, D.C., New York was with my parents, and then L.A. was just me doing my thing. Okay, so what was your life like in Liberia? It was great. It's common in Liberia for the grandparents to take, like, to raise the, kid, the grandkids. Right. So me and a lot of my cousins lived together. And actually, my parents were back in the U.S. in college. Like, they oh. came after they had me. They came to the U.S. to go to school. Okay. So they did that. And I was living with my grandparents in this company. And then, yeah, in this company, the company was called Lamco, which was a Liberian-American mining company. Okay. And so we had <laughs> private beaches. We oh, wow. had golf what is it called country clubs i mean it was the life that was it was not what people really think about when they think of africa right right not what i think about yeah, yeah. we didn't have like access to money per se but we right. didn't need access to money because like we would put stuff like go to a country club and put stuff on my grandfather's tab right and then when i went to live with my parents later on it was the same thing like they would give us like an allowance but you could go to the grocery store and be like oh just put it on my dad's tab or just go to the you know yeah the pool and be like oh just put it on fumbleless tab and wow so it was that kind of life now did you feel insulated having that li lifestyle in africa yeah i would say i did because if we went outside of where we live right like the lamco it was different i mean 
my cousins and stuff, they had a different life. It was, it was similar but different because they didn't have a lot of the expats. So where I grew up, it was a lot of expats. So you had people from all over Europe, America. So okay. I grew up in that community. Okay. Whereas where they grew up, even though they had access to stuff, but it was mostly dealing with just Liberians. So okay. Yeah. And what was the socioeconomic stature of uh, Liberia? Rich and poor. I mean... <laughs> Like a big It's a big difference. difference between the haves and the have nots. Okay. But sometimes having could mean having access to resources. Right. Not necessarily right. having money, but having access to people who had. Okay. Yeah. So people had money or just had things? I'm thinking I'm getting a barter no, system out no, of it. No, no. There are people with money. And then like the company that my grandparents and my parents worked for, they got they were paid like and we got paid in not we because i didn't work they got paid in u.s dollars oh okay so back then the only currency in liberia was u.s dollars really interesting yeah oh my god it was u.s dollars for like most of my childhood and then there was a civil war in liberia and then after that they had the then they had the they still call it the dollar right the liberian dollars and right. i think it has a different name now but all my childhood i only knew like the u.s dollar right so right so in the civil war did that disrupt the, the mining company oh yeah so there were a couple of wars there was one i think there was one in 1979 there was one in 1980 1979 was an attempted coup on the president which right. is when they try to kill the president 1980 they actually killed the president mm. so that disrupted the country and then in 1989 that's actually when the civil, that was actually when the civil war started like right. when they overthrew the government and it was like 14 years of terror oh jesus um, 14 years of terror so my family was here in like the 80s and i remember when we would when the civil war happened in liberia we would because my my mom's sister my granddad and a lot of family members were there and so we would just get all the news from CNN. And there was, it was CNN and there was headline news. Right. And so our TV never left CNN or headline news because they were reporting what was happening in Liberia. And it was a year and we hadn't heard from my family. Oh, shoot. So just the trauma of trying to figure out because every day you were hearing this family was murdered and this family oh my was God. murdered. So it was just like, I would just see my parents sit by the phone and like, mm. wait, like. This is pre like smartphones and like being able oh, to like, yeah. track your family. Yeah, yeah oh this gosh. was that. And then they were lost in somewhere in the world. And so I remember the day when we got the phone call, like my aunt called, like whenever it was an overseas call, you would hear like a click on yeah, the line. Yeah, yeah. I think I answered the phone. And it was my aunt, my mom's sister. And I was like, oh my God, it's my aunt Chloe. But I called her into Tita. I was like, it's my aunt. And my mom, I remember her running up the stairs to get the other phone and my dad grabbing the other oh, phone. Yeah. And my grandmother, and it was just like, oh my God, you guys are alive. Because for like one year, we had no idea. Oh, that's where crazy. Anyone was. So to answer your question, it totally disrupted Okay. Like the economy, and it's never really recovered since then. Oh, really? Like it's had its ups and downs, and I think there's been mm -hmm. little wars here and there. But I was visiting Liberia 
in 2013. I've, I visited twice, like 2013 and 2017. And when I went in 2013, I remember someone asked me to do a, like a, a mental health workshop. Right. But just walking through the city, I would say to my aunt, my dad's sister, I'm like, it's like a walking time bomb. Like everyone is so in like fight or flight mode. Like, right. Because there's like all this suppression of what had happened, what people had witnessed, what people had gone through. Right. And I remember doing the workshop and just kind of, I was like, well, what can I do that's so basic? And I started talking about symptoms of depression and anxiety. And so many people came up to me and was like, oh my God, that's what I've been experiencing. I just didn't know it had a name. Right. So it's never recovered. And I think they just need a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of thinking about what was in my mind was since the mining company was obviously so much money, bringing so much money, did the, the rebels overtake the mine or was there so much money that they would get paid off and the mine kept going? Everything was disrupted. Like who was there left? Like right. people, if you could get out, right. you got out of the country. So right. they overtook everything. Okay. Um, I mean, now there's a new company that's there. I'm not sure if it's a mining company, but right. I know there's a new company sure. that took over. Yeah. But everything was destroyed. Like right. my childhood home, like all of that's gone. Oh, God. Yeah. Wow. So when you were there, did you know you were an artist at that time? Did you know you were a personality? So here's the funny thing. My aunt. My dad's sister, she's a huge singer, like right. in Europe and Africa. Oh, okay. She's huge. Okay. She's a celebrity, right? Not to me, but right. to other people. Sure, sure. So I always thought I would be, I actually thought I would be a singer. Right. Like, like her. Right. And so I started off singing and dancing and then went to audition for Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, D.C. Right. And I was like, well, everybody's singing and dancing, so maybe I should do something else, right. which is how I got into acting. I always liked it, but I really thought I was going to go to be a singer or a dancer. Mm -hmm. But I was like, I need to do something where I can stand out and mm. be me. Were you performing out in Liberia? I was. Okay. I was dancing, like doing cultural dances, and right. I was singing a lot. Like I was always like the lead singer in the church choir. Don't right. ask me to sing today. I, I was about it. to. I was like, no. Oh, please, please, <laughs> no please, come on. Maybe, maybe later on when the vocal cords are yeah. a little. Yeah, weird. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like that. No, you can't ask me to like, sing now. In, in five I, seconds, it'll be. I, I will always. <laughs> As I, as I ruin the Maybe song. Maybe when the vocal cords are a little more. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess I'm going to have to come out of pocket for that one. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I just did. Okay. People have what just shut off the podcast. Okay, so you were entertaining. Yeah. Uh, you were going out and, and doing that. Yeah. Uh, somebody else wanted to ask, how many languages do you speak? Well, Oh, I just speak the one. Okay. Well, but I just speak well, the no, one. Well, no, besides. No, just this English language. Oh. You, I'm learning French. I'm ooh. I'm okay with French. But here's the thing. So Liberia has several dialects. But Liberia is very... So a lot of African countries, you have your tribes. Mm-hmm. And, well, I would say unfortunately. So my, my parents, my mom's side of the family, they were slaves that went back right and so because i from america from america oh, okay. like my great-grandmother was like six years old when she went back okay she went to liberia right so because of that 
that side of my family, well, all my family, they speak English. Right. And we never learned any of the tribal dialects because we grew up, I spend most of my time with that side of the family. On the other hand, my dad's side of the family, so even though they're considered like they're from an indigenous tribe, but then socioeconomic comes into play because they're from like a, I guess, higher caliber in society. Right. So they didn't necessarily speak any tribal languages either. So we got the short end of the stick. Oh, okay. Don't speak anything. So when you say there's tribal dialects, did it really go from like, you know, town to town, different languages? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely different languages. You have like, my dad's tribe is the Vi tribe. My grandmother, my mom's mom, she spoke like two or maybe three dialects, like the Bassa, the Gola, the Pele. Wow. I think, yeah. Well, wow. We just, we didn't. Sometimes I think what plays a role into that, Liberia is really interesting mm. because even though it's all the one country, but they're very, it's kind of, you could be segregated based on socioeconomic status. So I think also coming from the U.S. and even though by the time it got to my parents, they weren't born in the U.S., but I think coming from the U.S. and going to Africa, there was like, Unfortunately, there is a we're better than you mentality. Mm. We're the English speakers are better than you who are like the indigenous people. And you kind of see that in the society even now. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is interesting. You talked about both being like a performer, but obviously we know you do lots of other interesting things now. Now. When you were performing, did you know you had that interest in psychology? Like, when did that kind of, when did they cross over for you? Well, when I was a teenager, because when I was an undergrad, I was a double major. So maybe it was when I was in high school that I knew that I loved psychology, because when I went to undergrad, I, I, was a ma I majored in drama and psychology. So I, I guess that would be when, maybe around, like, 11th or 12th grade. Yeah, they complemented so, each other. Yeah. So you were, you were in the performing arts school, yes. and you went there all four years of high school? I went there three years of high school. Okay. Because I was in New York prior to that. Oh, okay. And the school I was in New York was terrible. It was horrible. It was a private school. Right. But the kids were so mean. <laughs> they were so mean because I was this little African kid. Right. They were like, oh, yeah. they were so mean to me, especially the girls. And I had, I had two friends. Imagine being like in high school and having only two friends because the kids are so mean. And the boys were nice to me. So because the boys were nice, the girls were even yeah. meaner. Oh, God. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, my God. And then when I went to D.C., it was like I went to a school of the arts and finally like, oh, my God, I fit in with these kids. Like, you found like your... I found my tribe. Yeah. And they were accepting of me. They would come to my parents' house. They're like, we want to taste the Liberian food. Oh, we want wow. to know about the culture. Oh. And so that was just, a, it was such a difference. Like, wow. So it was funny that I ended up back in New York. So I was like, I hate the kids here. They're so horrible. So did you bring some tribal dances to your performing at the performing arts school? Not I, because I was a student, but we had choreographers. Right. And so they would do, I remember we did this thing. Um, it was set in Soweto, like it was set in Soweto, South Africa. And so we did this whole dance about the 1976 revolution 
um, that they had in South Africa. So one of the choreographers did that. And then when I was in L.A. and stuff, I would dance. A friend of mine had like a African dance company. Really? So I would dance with her. And, and actually, where, where was that at? Just curious. Just in the valley. Okay. Like in the valley. And then in D.C., I would do a lot of African dancing in college. Like we would go out and perform at different places. Okay. Yeah. All right. So. Cool. Yeah. So you started acting. How did that come about? And so my mom was driving home from work. When not she was on the. I think she was. She was on the bus from work, and you know we had all seen like the school. Like if anyone grew up around my time, there was back in the day. Like even before I was born, they had Fame, the sure. TV show. And so sure. I always wanted to go to a school like Fame. And so my mom comes home one day. She goes, "There's a school in Georgetown called Duke Ellington, and it's a school of the arts." And I was like, "What?" Sign me up. Sign me up. So she got me like an acting coach. Like, it's so cool because think about it. Like, your parents are from Africa. They're not necessarily, like, open to you being, like, an actor. But my parents were so open and so cool. They were like, do what you want to do. You want to act. You be the best actress there is. So they got me an acting coach. Oh, wow. And she coached me for, like, several weeks before my audition. And I went in and I nailed my audition. <laughs> and I got into the school. Who just talked about this? Was it Pamela Dillman? Did she talk about getting me because her dad coached her? But we just had a story, and I'm also trying to figure, isn't this a, isn't this a similar story to, to Dave Chappelle? I'm, I'm trying to think, didn't he have a story about he was trying to get in, but he just kind of acted like he knew what he was doing? I hope it's not somebody else, because I think it was almost the same story like that, that he was trying to get in, but he... He did. Yeah, he did. He did it on his comedy special. Right. So we talked about that, yeah, right? So that's that. it. Okay. Yeah, he did talk about that. Right on. Did you guys ever notice that you had that similar? Well, I was coach. I knew, like, I knew what Dave, he said he, um, he kind of like was winging his audition. Or right. Something. Right. Yeah, but he but, went on to oh, be a big but, star. So it's different because, yeah. But, you, but you, yeah, he was winging it and, but then didn't he have to go back or something? You took it serious? I think he did. I think he yeah. said he did. Okay. I yeah, had I no idea. Yeah. Okay. So at the school, you you got bit by the acting bug. I mean, you really I took did. it to heart. I did. Right? I did. I took it to heart. It was like wonderful experience. Talk about we had all the classical training. Um, and then I went to Catholic University after that. And I did, that's why I did my drama and psychology. And again, a lot of classic was, you know, we're like theater snobs. Like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm theatrically trained. Right, right. I love this. Right. I can talk to you about that all day. Like, like is that what really caught you? Like the bug, like the, the drama of the like drama, the classical like the, the, I mean, I was such a, the dialect. I am just, still such a theater snob, but you know, now with social media, you kind of have to get off your theater snob hop, like mm -hmm. horse, but I'm like, oh. It's the theater. We don't do that. No, I felt like I felt like I would. If you made theater snob videos, I would be liking <laughs> yeah, them like, just as much as all the other stuff you do. You're not theatrically trained. We shouldn't be talking. I mean, I wasn't that no. bad, but you know, I was like, oh. but all theater kids have that like secret streak in them. Yeah, even if they haven't been theatrically trained, there's just like I've been in a musical. Exactly, I'm a theater. This is the live audience. Yeah, you know I mean, what can beat that? There's nothing, and then. That was it. Just nothing could beat the live audience. It was. Mm. It just feeds your soul to experience like all of that in sure. someone else that you've never met. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> now I'm definitely putting you in something again. <laughs> Every time I see you in the courtyard, I go, "What are you working on?" I know. Like, what are you working on? But see, Brian, and I say that's my that's my drug of choice, like mm. acting. And I'm like, I have to be really careful because I can just go right. 
to that pigeonhole and that's my whole life is about it. And I'm like, I've been there. I can't oh, go back it. to that. Yeah, it's you so don't difficult want to, to care about anything else sometimes. You own an SUV. You could live in that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I was like, listen, I've been the, I'm not going back there. I love it though. Like, I love it. But yeah. Would well, you be like in a repertory theater company if you could like pick that? Sure. I mean, I feel like that was prevalent a while ago where that was kind of how it was done and I'm like yeah. oh, I feel like I wish I'd been born a century earlier and been part of that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. But even, I think you could still do that like on the east coast and mm. stuff like that LA mm. I don't think you can really find that here no I mean the thing about LA is everybody's trying to not everybody most people are just trying to get a gig out of it I was in a yeah. play when I first started acting I was in a play every weekend for seven years really yeah I love the theater I'm a theater yeah. snob and acting snob no seriously you wouldn't have invited us on the podcast if we if weren't we were also theater snobs I yeah. see that now no <laughs> man Brian you know what I love doing yeah I love tapping that subscribe button mmm I love it too, son. And just like all your dates, I tap it last. But nothing's as good as tapping this button. You see Brian here? He's not always doing the best. Financially, mentally, physically, for sure. You want to help keep Brian off the streets of Hollywood? There's a way you can help. Join us on Patreon. You want to tell him what we got on there, buddy? Yes, we have the general admission, we have the backstage, and we have the VIP all-access pass. So please, join today. I'm due for a bath. In the arms of the no, I love the theater. I think, you know, if I can make a living in theater, I'd yeah. do it. Yeah. When I went in 2014, I did the play in New York. I did a play called The Long Shrift, and I was there for months. And I thought, I thought, hell, I'm going to go back there. And I looked it up. It was about seven fifty a week to be a lead in an yeah. off-Broadway show. And I was like, well, that's all right. And production was paying for my apartment. So I said, that's okay. I'll save a few bucks. Yeah. And it was the Rattlestick Playwrights Theater. Uh, David Van Asselt was the um, artistic director at the time. Great guy. Um, really, really obviously sub uh, submerged in the, uh, you know, the, the true theater world. Mm -hmm. And he'd been there for like 35 years. And so it was great. But they were doing a new kind of... You know, it was great. Great, I, I happened to fall into it. They mm. doing a new kind of thing where they wanted students to come back to the theater, mm. so they were charging twenty dollars a ticket. So we got paid like three hundred a week or oh, something, God. and it was like, yeah. So I had a bus pass and a subway pass, and uh, you know, I did a lot. Of, I did a lot of walking, which was fantastic while I was yeah. there. Yeah, as I said, if I could make, you know, Some if I can make a living at it, yeah. And I don't know what happened to him because he had talked to me. They had the original theater, I think it's on Columbia. Uh, no, no, no. A NYU, I think, owned the property. And it was still there, the original theater where Eugene O'Neill started out in New York. And they were going to do plays in 2016, 100 years after the, the Provincetown Players. Obviously, it was in, in P-Town and in, in, on Cape Cod. 
but they were going to do an anniversary hunt, and he asked me about it, and he said, what should we do? I said, I think we should do the seven plays of the sea, but I don't know what happened, and he's not the artistic director anymore, but he was, I, he was in fine shape. He was an older gentleman, and that was going on nine years ago, you know what yeah. I mean? So I don't know what he moved on with his life, but he was a good dude, and he was definitely, definitely a uh, student of the theater yeah. and acting. So yeah. I love the theater. I mean, it's wonderful. And it was uh, it was nice to be in New York as a theater town. Yeah. So I do the Absolutely. play, and James Franco was directing the play, so we got a lot of buzz out of that. When he was on Instagram, he would uh, you know gram it out or Twitter tweet it out, and <laughs> then and, and then we get full houses. And so then you'd be walking through Soho or or anywhere you'd be walking around town. It was in the West Village. It was yeah. right off of Perry and Seventh on Greenwich. And you'd be walking around town, and people would be eating outside. It was a summer for the most part. And you'd walk by and say, hey, loved you in the play. play. <laughs> loved you in the play. You know, it was just, it was just when they'd knock yeah. on windows to be inside. They'd tap by, they'd show the program. Sorry. You know, yeah. And so I was at the 9-11 Memorial, and I was down in the basement where they have the pictures of everybody who oh, passed. Wow. And it's really kind of sad because mm -hmm. some of them were just like headshots or business shots, you know, attorneys or whatever. Yeah. They had them there. But some of the people were like. <laughs> and yeah. so these people gave the pictures of their people's personalities. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that was really sad yeah. to see these people kind of vivacious, kind of really. They were really. Alive. Yeah, they, they were really alive. Yeah. So you weren't allowed to take pictures in there of any of the pictures. And David Angel, who created um, Frasier, mm -hmm. was on one of the planes with his wife, Lynn. And I had sold Porsches at one time, and he had come in a couple times, never bought one, but he was very kind to me. His, and I call it, would follow up at home. He was very friendly, you know, and he was an enormous TV producer because he had started on Cheers mm. and then Frasier, and he lived in a big place in Toluca Lake, and we may know about that. Well, not a big <laughs> Love place. The lake. <laughs> but I just want to say, you know what? I didn't, it, it wasn't part of my world. I will, you know, a lot of people took that, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? 9 mm 11, -hmm. oh my God, yeah, it affected me. Where were you living? Ohio. You know, I wasn't, yeah. I just, these two people were very kind to me and uh, very nice people. So I just wanted to, you know, go to the picture and just yeah. say. And so I'm down there and there's a security guard. And he was a large Latin man. He was, must have been 6'4", so I kind of saw him over the crowd. And he looked at me, and he started walking towards me. I said, I'm not taking pictures. But he just had a, a serious look on his face. And I'm like, what I do? But I'd been in trouble most of my life. So <laughs> you I, I knew the look. Yeah, know that look, sir. And, and he comes up, and he, and he, I mean, it's crowded. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's like you're on a, you know, you know, festival seating at a, at, at the stage on a punk rock show or something. It's right, it's right up there. Wow. And he comes up, and he kind of leans, and he goes, "I loved you in the long shrift." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, oh, thanks, man, thanks." Uh, you know, I, I said, oh, thank you, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 so we exchange a few pleasantries, and he's like, well, you know, have fun, or something, and, and then he was stopped, he was like, I mean, uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. not really. Yeah, yeah, it was just a... Appreciate Anyway, so, yeah, theater, and especially theater in New York. Do you have, like, a play like that, like... Sorry, Brian. You go ahead. Go ahead. But That's what you're here for, to you, interrupt me. Yeah, I'm here to interrupt Brian. Hello. And it's working. Uh... <laughs> 
I was wondering, do you have, because you said like obviously that deep love of theatre. Yeah. I feel like all of us have a play or a show or something that we did that sticks with you where you're like, oh, I have to tell that story. Well, the when I got my equity card, I did a show at the Crossroads. So it was at the Crossroads Theatre and it was a new show. It was a newly written show. And at the time, man, it was one of those things you get the call as a random audition. You're like, because, okay, so the year before I had said, I'm going to book a job at the Crossroads Theatre Company. And I wrote that down. Like, I was like, I'm booking a job at Crossroads. Manifested. So I manifested it. So when I got the audition, I was like, this is crazy. And I saw some people there who were like, I was like, there's no way I'm going to get this job. Like, these people are like, you know, you never just think you, you have it. Like, you ever think everyone else has it and you may not just have what they're looking for. Right. And I went in there and I just give my all for that audition. Like it was crazy. And I got a call back and I went the next day and I just felt it. I was like, I think I got the part. And so when they called me to say I booked the job, I was just, I was terrified. I was happy. <laughs> I was like, Oh my yeah. God, I don't think I can do this. I'm going to get fired. It's my first big show. Right. But so I did that show. I got like some reviews. I got some great reviews. <laughs> um, that was just one of the, the the audience like really connecting with my character. She was this young woman who had um, she had a stillbirth, and after that she kind of loses her mind mm. and gets into this whole spiritual world. But she goes into talking about Africa. She goes into like the African religious um, spiritual beliefs and goes into like believing in the Yoruba um, gods, the Orishas. And it was just this beautiful thing. And everyone thought she was out of her mind, but she had a spiritual connection after she lost her baby. And it was just, it was such a beautiful show. And that's the one, like the audience, I remember the, the scene when she loses the baby and she starts talking about, the next scene she comes out and she's talking about the sea and the, the gods and, and people are like, what is wrong with her but she's having like this whole epiphany right and it was just the audience really caught on and that was the great thing and for me that was the i think as an actress that was the first time that i was like allowed myself to make bold choices and not be afraid of my choices because mm -hmm. i remember in rehearsals the director was like you gotta just go you just gotta get and i was like i don't have no kids i don't know what that's about you know right but so at some point that's when you go into your substitution remember when you sure yeah went into substitution yeah like, how can i connect to this character on right. this level so right. that was one of the best shows of my life yeah that was journey monday night the substitution oh, yeah when i was telling you about that so what point was that in your acting career was that early on or was it that was fairly early on i would say um and then after that i went this is like 1999 y'all so this is seven i was like seven years old <laughs> okay so after that you know back in the day like in the 90s i was dating this person one time and i was like back in the day he's like what's the back in the day we had i was like the 90s he said the 90s is back in the day like, for me it is <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but so back then you had to get your after your, your equity card, mm-hmm. then your SAG and your after. But and then at some point it changed where you could get. So I had my equity and my after card. Mm-hmm. And then they changed the rules. Like if you had both or something like that, then you could get your SAG. Right. Right. SAG, I, got I still don't understand how it works. That was crazy. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't get an agent if you didn't have a union card. But you couldn't get a union card if you didn't mm-hmm. have an agent. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Catch 22. Yeah. yeah it's it going. Yeah. Yeah. And now you can just get on TikTok and, you know, get your own life. So, right. um, hey, Gramps. Yeah. I know. MTV, MTV Gramps. Gramps. That's MTV Gramps. Hey. So, so check this out. I had no idea that Brian was this, like, TikTok, TikTok celebrity. Right? TikTok <laughs> like celebrity. a TikTok. I had no idea until, like, a few weeks ago. And he showed me his account. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> I just knew about Lola's. I didn't know about MTV no. Gramps. Yeah. You have to do like a crossover episode. Yeah. You know, right? Like a yeah. therapy session between Gramps, Gramps and... and oh, no, no, my gosh. That would be hilarious. No, with Gramps himself. Oh, my God. <laughs> Gramps unpacking his trauma. We'll see how that goes. Gramps is out of control. <laughs> Gramps is out of control. I will come to you. We will make this episode. So. Oh, no. When did you start to know you were going to go back to school? How did that come about? <laughs> well, Tired I was, of being poor? I think actors, well, creatives have like, they come up with like jobs that you have like no idea these jobs existed. Because I was working desktop publishing at night at an investment bank. And then I came to L.A. and I did it for a while. And then I went into fitness. And then, I mean, I was all over the place. And I was like, oh. This life, like I'm seeing all these people that I knew, and some of them are younger than me, and they're doing amazing things with their lives, and I'm in the same spot that I was several years ago. And I love acting, but I think it's my drug of choice. I need to, I need to get off this little, get off this drug, you know, deal with my addiction. I put that in um, because acting, theater was my addiction. So I was like, this was around. 2007, like 2006, 2007, I started feeling like I need to go back to school. I need to go back to school. I need to do something different. And I knew it was psychology, but I still wanted to be able to audition. Mm. And so Michael Jackson died. People were like, what? I'm like, Michael Jackson died, y'all. And the news was like, he was trying to make a comeback. And I was like, he was 50 years old. And they're saying he was trying to make a comeback. That is crazy. He was at the top of his game. Mm. And I remember sitting down and I was like, I got to go back to school. And I went online and I Googled forensic psychology. And I kid you not, I've been looking for a forensic psychology program for years. And then this day it popped up. Like a school in L.A. had just started a forensic psychology program. So this was when he died in June. So this was like around July that I've like early July, like the first week of July, and I found this program, and I emailed them, and they emailed me back, and I went and did their orientation, and I had to write an essay, and I wrote this essay, and I'm like, I'm getting into this program. <laughs> so I did the essay. I did an interview with the with the chair of the department, and they called me, like, you got into the program, and I was like, oh, my God. 
Like I'm, because for me it was like I needed to change where my life was going, and as an actress, I felt like too many people had a say so in where my life went, and I'm right. like, no, I need to change that where I have a say so. So if I ever choose to go back and perform in any way, I'm doing it on my terms, not anyone else's terms. And so it was 2009 that I went back to grad school. Okay. Yeah. So this was a grad school, the forensic psychology. Yeah. Okay. It's so, a yeah, okay. So, you went through the class, and you know, I really want to talk about wh how did you start with the prison system? Did that start right away, or? So, I've always been interested in, even like as a kid, in the mind, and really started with like wanting to know about serial killers and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I was huge into that. <laughs> like, so, what's different about? Like that mindset that causes people to do those things, that kind of fascination. That kind of yeah. fascination, but also the families. Like mm. how, nature how is it versus that what nature. they do, how is that impacting their families? Mm. Because now their family is usually ostracized by the yeah. society. Yeah, but some the of those people, reason. some of the families, I mean, you've watched the series Mindhunter. I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Because oh, okay. when I was working with a prison, I was like, I see this every day. I don't need to watch it. I guess right, the true crime right. podcasts aren't right. new games. So, yeah, because yeah, a lot of their families had messed them up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So a lot of it came from families. Right. But I thought I would work with the FBI. And then, of course, Silence of the Lambs came out and we saw right. Claire Rees. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to be her. <laughs> so, <laughs> I only saw that for the first time recently. Really? Oh, wow. Just because, like, I was so scared of it. Really? I had bigged it up in my head to be this film where I'm like, oh no, there's going to be like bones crunching Foley and oh. No, she was amazing and yeah, I wanted so to good. be her. And I thought, then at some point there was this thing that came along called Homeland Security and I was like, oh my God, that sounds interesting. I would like to work for them one day. So that's how it started, but I knew in order to work with the FBI, you had to do like forensics. In my mind, I had to do forensic psychology and understand the criminal mind and all of that and understand the law and how, how it plays into psychology. And so that's how the prison started because then I was like, well, if I work at a prison, I get to talk to the killers and the rapists and the murderers. And <laughs> that was exciting. And you're all excited about it. You're like, yeah. <laughs> well, actually I, actually, I didn't want to talk to the rapists. I never thought I would talk. To, I didn't think I could handle talking to rapists until right. I actually talked to them. I was like, oh, okay, so you just have to remove the crime and see the person right that that's what it was mm. so i remember working in the prison i was like i have to do everything like you don't want to be cute at all it's almost like preparing for an acting role because you have to be in a very professional yes space yes but you can't be too professional mm. that your clients don't right connect so it was they really relax. interesting right they don't want to feel analyzed either i'm guessing yeah but you have to be in control because you're dealing with a lot of people who are like used to just manipulating you and they're so good at how they can manipulate you that you always had to be on like on guard but not look like you're on guard so you have to be relaxed but like aware just like in the film science of the lambs where it's basically like a game of mental yes. tennis and then he's like oh that was a boring answer like yes that. exactly so working in the prison and i knew i didn't want to work in a women's prison because i felt like these girls are going to try to eat me because those girls like were a, mean to you at school. Like a, <laughs> they're going to be like, what do you call them? Jurassic Park. Right, right. Dinosaurs. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I was like, no, yeah. I'm not yeah. dealing with woman energy. I know. So I was like, with the guys, they would want to impress. 
And so they, or they would think, oh, I might have a chance. I have a better luck working with the men. They might accidentally let their guard down in ways that they wouldn't with a male psychologist. Yeah, but I knew I had to be in control. But then the only way to be in control was to be fair and like have a standard across the board for everyone. There were no, you just had to be standard across the So they knew like at the prison, they called me Dr. Fumbleist. So they knew when I walked in the room, this is what you can expect from her. She's going to do, 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 do. She's not going to give you, you're not going to talk out your head and think you're going to get away. She's going to write you up, you know? Mm. So you had to be hard, but still had to be kind enough where they felt they could come and say, um, I need you to do this on my behalf. That was, that was in the scope of what you did as a right. psychologist. Right. Because with the prison, you're not only dealing with the inmates, you're dealing with the, the officers, you're dealing with the mental health staff. <laughs> And the mental health staff was a hot mess. The managers. So you're dealing with the administration. And that was really, that was, to me, that was worse than dealing with the inmates. Because at least with the inmates, you knew what you were getting. You've been watching Brian Lally, Hollywood Native. Now I want to talk to you about something I'm really passionate about, and that's teaching acting. So I co-founded Lola's Acting School with my son. Kyle Lally, Lally or Lally Acting School. I've been acting for a, a long time now, of 100 plus credits on IMDb, hundreds of plays I've been involved with over the years. And I just want to share that experience with you. What we do differently here at Lola's is we give you practical advice that you can use on a movie set, on a play, an audition, anywhere. We give you the foundation to build yourself as a great actor. If you come to us, you don't know anything. We can teach you everything you need to know to be comfortable on a, on a set and to excel. Don't just listen to me. Look at what our students are doing. Daryl Wesley, who is writing on two hit shows, The Game and The Upshaws, and Ben Barrett, who is a series regular on The Politician. Megan Davis, who is uh, playing Amber Heard in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard story. Come check us out. We're at the Historic Arc Theater in the NoHo Arts District. You ever want to try plant-based eating? I have. What, you're a little confused, overwhelmed, you don't know how to get started? Definitely. Well, there's a simple answer to that. Go to Debbie Chu's Chew On Vegan YouTube channel. Debbie Chu is a plant-based RN. I've known Debbie for over 38 years, and she's very good at what she does. You go to the channel, and there's 300, over 300 recipes. They're simple, easy to make, and they're delicious. If you want to try it, you just might get healthy. Give it a shot. Chew On Vegan. And the prison system was really interesting. It's kind of like tiered crime and murder oh, like yeah. at the top. Yeah. They're yeah. like the top dogs and the sex offenders. Oh. If you were a sex offender, you better make sure nobody found out about what you did. Because you will get stabbed. Yeah. And not in a good way. Not in a, Like they would kill you. So tell me what it was like the first time you walked on a prison yard. Yeah. Or, it was a high. It's. I mean, I know I'm. I'm really crazy. It was. I, I it know was what you such mean. A That's why you're here. Because I was like, oh my god, I'm here and doing like the average person has never been on a prison yard. And when you're on a prison yard, like sometimes all the prisoners are out working out, and you have to walk on the yard amongst those people because it's like just you 
and all these guys. And yeah, there are officers around. There's always officers around, but they tell you like, don't trust that because we're around that somebody's not going to try to attack you. So it was a high, it was a little, I was never really scared because prior to working in the prison, I had worked with guys that were coming out of prison and these guys were on the street. Like they could follow you home if they had to, you know what right. I mean? So I had like kind of prepared myself. I worked with teenagers in the system. Then I worked with guys coming out of prison. So I was kind of prepared. And so going in, I just felt like it was the next level. And I went, I think I, I started at like a level three prison and then I went to a level four. It's like, oh, I was just graduating. <laughs> I went to a level Leveling four up prison. To... I think I would talk about the first time I experienced a riot. Oh, wow, yeah. Well, even before that, there was one time where a fight broke out and I was in the housing unit, like where the guys were. I was in the housing unit and there's only two officers in the unit and I went to one of the doors and a fight broke out. I was like, can I cuss? Yeah. I was like, Fuck oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> what the hell do I do now? Right. Because they were just... Was but that protocol were, or anything? Had you been given like rough ideas of get to the the office, like get to the office because the officers knew I was there because I had to sign in. So you got to get to the office as fast as you can because they're about to do the little bombs, the, you know, that the, the smelly bombs. I forgot what they're called. Pepper spray. The pepper they, spray. Yeah, yeah. But it's intense. Mm. So they had to do the pepper spray and I got to the office. The officers, one came to get me to get, cause I was on the second floor. He came to get me down the stairs and the other one was trying to, and there were like just officers coming in. Cause once something breaks out, someone hits an alarm mm. and we all had to wear alarms. Like you had to wear your alarm on, on the prison grounds and you had to carry a whistle. So if you were ever in the situation, you could hit your alarm at any point and the officers will come to save you. So this day they got me to the office, but I remember that was the first time that I was like, I was a little shaken up by it. Like, oh my God, like anything could have gone down. I mean, they calmed down and everything, but that was a little scary for me. Like, oh my God. And the second time that something was scary for me was I ran groups. So it was only me in the room with like 20 guys. And I had two facilitators and these my facilitators were lifers. One of them was what we call LWAP, life without parole. And the other one was life with the possibility of parole. And something happened and two of them got up and got in each other's faces. So if that was the room, I was on that side of the desk, like where they were. Mm. And I moved to the back and I was like, guys, I don't want to hit my alarm. I'm going to hit my alarm. And if I hit my alarm, we can never have this group. And then the facilitators got in and like, you know, settled things down. So the next time I came in, I was like, you guys really, I was really nervous on Monday, on Tuesday from what happened. And I was like, I was really nervous. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't want to do my alarm. And so after the group, my LWAP facilitator, he said, let me tell you something, doc. And the group was... <laughs> It was like victims awareness and I was teaching them, you don't want violence to be in your toolbox. Violence is off the table. So he said, let me tell you something. You were safe in here on Tuesday. If anyone had come near you, violence was on the table. <laughs> and I was like, well, no, he's like, I, no, violence was going to be on the table. So, I mean, some of the, the, the inmates, you did feel safe with them, but still you had to be 
aware at all times. And you were teaching non-violence in I was so teaching there's like this yeah. In a violent place. There was one more story. There was one inmate. Oh my god. And you're here for stories. The yeah, first time I met him, I was scared. Because he had murdered his cellmate. And he had had several attempted murders and he had had several attacks on staff. And I was like, why am I the one to see him on this little this little itty bitty person like why am I going to go see this guy so when we when I went into the housing unit I said to the officers like can you stay at your thing and just watch us the entire time I'm with him they were like sure so he was cold like he was cold but after seeing him like every week every week he started to let his like guard down a little bit and then he got sick and I hadn't seen him in a few weeks so I went to the the camp, the hospital on infirmary. The infirmary. Yeah. Okay, Brian knows <laughs> everything. Okay, babe. I've been around a couple You've been of places. Around the block I'll, I'll tell you my prison story in a minute. <laughs> so I went to the infirmary to see him, and then we had a a treatment team meeting. Like about a week later, when I went to see him, we had a treatment team meeting, and he came into the meeting, and he was like telling them what was going on with him. He had to have surgery, and I had been advocating for him to have this surgery. And then he said, yeah, and Doc came to see me, and his eyes teared up. And I was like, oh, my God. And he looked at me, and it was like, but it was one of those things, like, you actually came to see me just to see how I was doing. Like, no one's done that before. Right, right. And then I went to him after. He goes, Doc, no one's ever done that before. Like, ever. But he was so cold. Like, so many people were afraid of him. Right. Like, I'm like, but you push everyone away. Like, no one's going to do that. Because even if they look at you, you're like, I'm going to kill him. Well, yeah. Yeah, I got a buddy who was in prison 27 years. He was uh, 18 years on death row. He got out, and he was he, he was a very big advocate for prisoners. He got a pardon so he could go in and talk to him. Yeah. prisoners about drugs and alcohol but he talked about that i mean he was a hell's angel he'd killed two men he had swastikas yeah. in his mm -hmm. teeth yeah you know what i mean yeah and he talked about putting on the prison the yard face of then course. going back to his bunk and crying in his pillow yep. and this was yeah. a bad motherfucker yeah you know what i mean so i used to take 12-step panels we called it we'd go in and talk to go to the prisons we went to we went to Chino YTS, the youth mm. training school. So you may know that. So everybody there is 25 and under. Mm -hmm. So they're just mm -hmm. nuts. They're not settled in. And they're all there for murder or attempted yeah. murder in that section. So we would go in. First time I went in, they said, okay, we gotta, we, you guys got to wait for a while till the pepper, <laughs> pepper spray clears out. Yeah. I said, okay. They said, because we had a riot. So then I'm going in, and so you know the yard, so we're going yep. we're going to the room we're going to, so everybody comes against the fence. Yep. Everybody comes against the orderly homes. So we would go in there, and back then I used to play cops as an actor all the time. Mm. TV movies, I played cops. I just looked like a cop. The Irish face, the short hair, and you know. Yep. I just wasn't trying to wear anything special, a pair of jeans and a jacket. And I'd walk in, and they'd look at me, and they'd go, man, man, this white motherfucker and they'd walk out of the room because you know they went to these meetings because they'd get good time yeah. or they'd get yeah. points on you know so chronos and so yeah so and you just reminded me so there'd be 40 guys in there and one 
uh, you know, one guard or one yeah. facilitator, whatever yeah. you call them, and no guns. There's no guns because no. they can't get it taken away from them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So he just working on a notebook, and all these guys would would be there, and uh, so we'd be talking. You know, we'd just be telling our stories about, you know, yeah, drugs on the street and stuff. Yeah. yeah so I was in there. You know, went there once a month for a year. I was just nervous all the time, right. and and I, I yeah. And kind of the way I grew up and stuff, so I, I, I you know, I felt like a punk. I'm just going to say that, being nervous in there. So my buddy Mike went with me one time. Mike had done a couple years. Mm -hmm. I said, Mike, man, I feel like a punk in here. You know, am I getting scared? Going, he goes, Hey, Brian, prison's scary. It is scary. He goes, It's a scary place. I go, Really? He goes, Yeah, I'm scared. Yeah. He goes, I, I'm, I don't want to be back in here. Yeah. And so it, it's it's a freaky place. So we're in there one time. And these, these two dudes go at it. And there was a guy, he was messing with this other guy. This guy was a shorter version. You may not know the reference. Artist Gilmore was a basketball player in the 70s. And he had the mutton chops. And this guy had a jerry curl and a mutton chops and a, and a goatee. And he just laid this dude out. I mean, he just laid him out. And the guy was on the ground bleeding. And he was he yeah. was out. And he was, like, shaking. And they were like, everybody down. Yeah. So, I, so I hit the floor. And the guys that were with me, they were like, Brian, they don't mean you. I go, <laughs> I go. the riot jumps off. And they say, everybody go down. Oh, I hit the ground. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I went, I went to that place, you know, for uh, a year, you know, walking Man. on there. So... I, um, you know, that's why I don't know what your experience was, especially with these people, because it's uncomfortable to say the yeah. least. As a woman in the prison, you have to be aware of what you wore. Sure. It's like I, everything I wore. You don't want to start a riot. I never knew I could wear layers in a hundred and some something degrees temperature. Right. I was like, honey, layer up. Right. Like cover every from just cover it all up. Right. But they were still like some of them were so disgusting. You'd be like, oh, just openly God. talking to like. Well, not really openly because they would get written up and mm. sent to the hole. But if they wanted to go to the hole, then yeah, they would openly do it and. You're not going to write me up because they're trying to get up the yard for maybe they don't want to get stabbed or whatever. So they will say stuff. I mean, most of them are respectful. I remember one time, what did this one call me? You fake black bitch or something. <laughs> I was like, okay. Oh okay, well, you're in solitary confinement. I get to go home. <laughs> I, I think part of it is that a lot of people in prison grew up without men in the home. Yeah. And I think they do respect women because yeah. they see a mother figure. Yeah. You know, especially if you're kind, exactly. professional, but kind. Yeah. Yeah. So some of them will lash out if they had that mother oh, figure who was doing other things. Oh, no, no. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with yeah. that, but I just think a lot of people. So, yeah. um, so did you travel to different prisons? Were you in California? I was or? in California. I was in the Central Valley at this prison. I started at this prison called Pleasant Pleasant Valley. Yeah, Pleasant Valley. It's in this town called Coalinga. Yeah, oh, that's where we talked about it. Yeah, I worked right. in Coalinga during the earthquake in 82 or 3 yeah. or something. Yeah. It's, I, hadn't, I didn't even know places like this existed in California. It's so rural. Yeah. Like it's really rural. And so I started there and then I went to Lancaster, the prison out here in Lancaster. Right. That was a nightmare. Like I wouldn't drive by that prison now. I have like right. Right. anxiety attack. But but because not the inmates, the staff. That, yeah, that's interesting. But that's a whole different story. Whole different. Well, I mean it's it's a different story, but it, it's crazy the mindset on the staff and I understand 
So I, I understand that they're they're dealing with something. They're trying to do it in an antiquated way. And I'm not saying yeah. you have to be really nice to people, but my experience going to the county jail mm-hmm. was, you know, I'm not going to tell all the stories, but when I first got there, there was a guard and there was a dude on the steps bleeding because he'd been in a fight. And the guard kicked him in the head and said, "Don't bleed on my steps." Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to my cell, and as I'm walking down, there's a guy hanging from the mm-hmm. cell. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they pulled him down, and he was still alive. But I'm just saying, I was only in there for days. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this kind of crazy shit happened yeah. all the time. It's an insane place. It's just it insane. It is. And for the the staff to to be treating these people, like kicking them in the head and, and trying to encourage people to get raped. And, yeah. you know, you're looking good there, honey. You know, dehumanizing people. If you're in a position yeah. of power, I guess it's really, they say that power corrupts. I mean, anybody in any position of power over somebody else, like mm-hmm. how not to take frustrations from outside or even frustrations from within. Yeah. Like you have to remember that there's that, that dynamic comes responsibility. Exactly. With that dynamic comes responsibility. And you would see the power dynamic with, now, let me just be clear. So for me, it wasn't the officers that traumatized me. It was the mental health staff. But <laughs> the mental health staff. <laughs> oh, the mental health staff. Traumatizing people. Traumatized me, but but the, you would see the power dynamic, like right. your, to your point, Brian, with the officers and the inmates. And sometimes, I remember one time this one guy, I think he had TikToks or something. And there, were, there was some scuffle going on, and I guess he threw it. And it hit the officer. And so they bring him into STRH, which was short-term restricted housing, solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And they bring him there and they write him up. I'm like, what is he being written up for? They were like, assault. Assault on what? Oh on the God. officer. I'm like, come on. The tic-tac hit you? Mm. The like, tic-tac? It's irritating. And now you're jumping on the principle of yeah. you don't get to do anything to me. But it's like. Yeah. It was almost like everyone was trying to be in control. Because yeah. somebody else was telling them that top dog orders. mentality right. is like death. Yeah. I mean, somebody with no experience with the prison system. I, I mean, other than like television and movies, especially being from another yeah. country, where I'm sure it's slightly different as well. And I'm I mean, sure. many similarities, I'm sure, but also differences. It's yeah, fascinating to just hear both of you talk about it. Yeah. So I have this young man in my life, and I started. Like kind of like a big brother program, but it was also the, in the 12 steps. I kind of he came to my life. He was about 19. He's about 34 now. So his problem is he has extreme anger against women. I mean, mm. it's it's an issue. It's not yeah. like he's no, going to get better. Weird. It's like medication and stuff. So I started working with him, and he was in group homes and stuff. Mm. Well, as he got mad and lashed out and attacked people, and I, I don't mean I don't think ever physically, but his violence is. Is anger is violent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this is in the mental health, I'm saying that in the mental health field, they started moving him like farther away and putting him. Now he's got a problem. But what would happen is these females would come up and want to, you know, big dog him. Yeah. And then he'd lose his mind. Mm-hmm. But they know that's his problem. So they moved him out to Lancaster to a facility. I don't know what it was. It wasn't a jail, but it was a mental health facility. And I drove out there to see him because mm-hmm. he didn't really have anybody else. His, yeah. his family was immigrants from Mexico, and they didn't have money and transportation yeah. to drive to, to so, Lancaster. So I go out there, and I go into one of these things. looks like a, a movie 
I go in, it's just bright fluorescent lights and a table. And then he comes in and I come in and a guy sits there. And I'm like, can I take him to get, because I take him out to eat. Can I take, no, he's staying here. Can I, no, you got 45 minutes sitting across the table. And what they did after that was they removed him from being able to speak to me or anybody else. And I didn't see him for a couple years. And I just thought... I came and I took him out. I took him to movies. I took him to eat. As I said, it's like a big brother thing. We'd hang out. And and that was their idea of fixing it. Mm-hmm. But at one time, I couldn't see him at all. And I lost touch with him. So they put him in a place that he had no visitors. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's probably in the hole. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but this wasn't a prison, though. No. It, it was, a, It was. you know, I'm sure it was a mental... It was a mental mm. facility mental health facility but it was locked down and it was crazy that i thought i'm sober many years and i'm trying to you know we're talking a program going to aa meetings and stuff and then they're like yeah we keep them every away from everybody especially this guy who is focused on his life getting better because he'd been through some stuff talking about me and trying to mentor him you know and again i know he had serious issues but just trying to show him a better way of life mm-hmm. and they're like yeah so you can't come see him at all anymore not only can you not take on mcdonald's meanwhile that's his connection to his one little bit of outside humanity and, yeah so right. when you say with the mental health staff i feel like I, I don't know what they're doing and i know it's i know it's not an easy job it's not it was a really stressful job because the coping mechanism was i'm suicidal and if someone says that, you're just like, oh, my God. Because you, even though sometimes you knew they were just trying to get something, but you never know how far they would go with that statement, like what they will do to get what they wanted. And right. that was just the most stressful, stressful thing like anyone could say. But then the, the policies and procedures made it horrible because it's almost like, they could now play us. The, the inmates could now play staff right, right. because all they had to say were those two words. And right. Whatever they wanted, right. they were going to get it. Right. Because those were the magic words that yeah. they knew. So even after mental health, you'd be like, well, this person isn't da-da-da. You couldn't say that. That's part of the problem with the, the homeless problem we have here is because the people who need it, the, ment- the mentally ill people who need it, yeah. all the drug addicts are getting over on the system by saying, whatever they're saying you know what i mean it's the same type of thing so how do you get the people who really need the help on the street and separated from the dope fiends because i when i was homeless i hung out with dope fiends you know what i mean those are the people i know are down there and they're trying to act like well whatever you know whatever the political affiliations are trying to act like all these people need that kind of help well Mm -hmm. not all of them do Mm -hmm. but i don't know i don't know how to fix it i'm not saying i do how how to do that to separate that but that's the that's the thing i mean sometimes i feel like the punishment and the crime just don't fit right now some people i believe listen you don't ever need to see the outside world again there are those people i'm like "Mm -mm, no but then for the most part, I'm like, these people have never been, I used to say sometimes the system failed. I'm like, if you see a kid in a group home and there's all this stuff happening in his home away from the group home and then he comes into the group home and then there's abuse and um, 
bullying and that's never really tackled. This kid is showing you all this anger and stuff now. Like he's not going to get better. He's only if we don't handle what's happening outside, you know, mm. the family life, the poverty, all of that. Because that's why they're acting out. You got poverty. You have domestic violence at home. They're witnessing this. Like you, you're talking about this one kid who yeah. has nobody. They're witnessing this. They're ostracized. They don't have father figures at home. A mom. Sometimes mom is on drugs and she's bringing in different men and she's so all these stories you hear like if we don't start to tackle that mm. there's no way we can like help this kid they're just moving on they now become the person at the prison mm. at 18 years old because how can you expect somebody to know how to behave in like whatever we want to call it like normal or polite society if they've yeah. never experienced that and then never. you have expectations of somebody without actually knowing the context in which exactly. they grew up what their experience of normal is whatever that is and then we just label them and say oh well this is what this this is ah, they this were is just, your behavior and this you hear people say yeah that you're born that way or you yeah. have with no actual acknowledgement of the, What's the nurture yeah. side, the whole yeah. nature versus like nurture. We have to say this is what's happening in the home, and a lot of it comes. Like, people don't have access to stuff. Like even right now, I have this contract where I do um, evaluations for Social Security, and people come in there, and sometimes you know, like everyone is so desperate just to have a little bit of money and you see people playing the system you're like oh my god everything you're saying to me is a lie like it's a lie yeah. like you, i know you don't hear voices and you're telling me i hear voices but i can control them you and i know you don't control the voices because when they come and you haven't been on medication in two years you have no way to control them i don't care what you say you know right. what i mean and so people are coming up with these elaborate stories but it's all because like if I go to work, I don't get paid as much as if I collect a social social security check. So right. there's an imbalance there somewhere. Right. So something in the system has to change. But anyway, that's a whole different yeah. story. Well, let me, let me ask you this. So you went into this with, with compassion, right? You went yeah. into the system and you thought, and I'm sure you did. I don't want to say you thought. I'm sure you helped people yeah. along the way, a lot along the yeah. way. But did you finally have enough of the system? Is that why you... Yeah, I did. I finally had enough of the state prison system. Like I, I just, like I said, it wasn't, yeah, it, it was the policies and procedures. Like you have people in the offices somewhere where we don't know where it is. And they're making these rules or these policies that don't apply to the day-to-day. -day. It's, it's not like they're coming to people on ground and saying, what happens in this situation? What happens in this situation? So they make up these arbitrary policies and they don't apply to the day-to-day. -day. And I was like, like you're just on a sinking ship mm. and you're constantly on edge because it's always cover your ass, cover your ass, cover your ass. And so one of the biggest things, okay, so in the prison system, this is my, this is where I get my trauma. So in the prison system, if you work in short-term restricted housing, which is the, um, like, solitary confinement, you're supposed to pull your, your inmate out and have them talk to you. But they have the right to refuse. So they can say, I don't want to talk to mental health. Right. Okay. I just have to document that. They can refuse as many times as they want. So even if I'm like, I think we need to pull this guy out, they have the right to refuse. There's nothing I can do about it. So I had an inmate who, whatever went down, he was like, oh, I'm fine, I'm good. 
he kills himself. They were like, it's your fault. Right. It's my fault that he kills himself. I'm like, but he was fine. Like, every time we saw him, you guys said, I can't force him to come and talk to me. He has, he doesn't have to talk to me, but I am now at fault because he died. So there was a huge investigation that found out it wasn't my fault. A couple of years later, it's another guy. He's life without parole. He comes into my unit. He's really volatile. Comes into the unit because he would spread feces when he gets upset. And we had a whole, I, I told my supervisor, like, listen, we need to have a team meeting with this guy. I'm a little concerned about him. He's been really out of control. Like, he's pissed off every time I talk to him. And sometimes he doesn't even come out and talk to me. So we have this big team meeting. It's like captains and lieutenants and mental health and medical. We're all there. We come up with this great plan for this guy. We're going to do this, this. He leaves the meeting. He was like, oh, my God, yeah, next week I'm going to do this, da, 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 da. I'm writing up his report to go to drop it off. I see my supervisor and the captain talking to him. And I'm like, do you guys need me? They're like, no, no, you're good. You can go home. I go home. I come to work the next day. He kills himself. Oh, my God. What just happened? They said I need to say it was my fault that he killed himself. Oh, shit. And I was like, absolutely not, I will not say. Because when I left here yesterday, this is what was happening. This is what he looked like. So I had gotten a promotion to go to a different prison. They blocked it. They were like, you cannot leave. They blocked It was just a mess. Like, I was tormented for months because now I have to go and defend myself that it was not my fault that this guy killed himself. Turns out, years later after the investigation, they found out. He, so, if you know anything about the prison system, like I said, they use suicide as a way to get things. And he obviously wanted something. And he was a tall guy, and he had put a shirt around his neck in like a therapeutic unit. But it didn't make sense because, so he put the shirt around his neck and he leaned forward. But he did it during rounds. So the thing was, every 15 minutes, someone is coming to Somebody check. would have seen it, right? But he timed it wrong. So by the time someone got to check on him, the time had, it wasn't the correct timing. So his intent was for them to catch him to in the act. Him. Right. And that was what the investigation found. Right. Like, it was an accidental death. But for like two years, no, for like a year, they were saying to me, why don't you're at fault. Sign this paper to say it was your fault. And I was like, absolutely not. I, you can say whatever you want. I'm not taking responsibility for someone's death, especially right. that I did everything on my part. Right. So it was then that I knew, like, I had to get out. That's why, like, the 14th freeway, <laughs> it's been years. I'm like, I need to go. I need to deal with my trauma. But when I get on that freeway, like, going towards Lancaster, I'm like, <gasps> like, so stressed out about it, you know, because yeah. it was such a traumatic situation for me. So even when I went to ICE, when I went to work with ICE, which was Homeland Security, I'm in a meeting. My supervisor calls me one day because I, for years, I was like, oh, my God, if people find out, like, it was my fault that this person died. Like, for years, I was like, right. running through my head. Mm. So I'm in this meeting one day and my supervisor was like, hey, the people here from Washington, D.C., they want to meet you. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to meet anybody. I just want to be under the radar. I don't want nobody to know who I am. 
And I walked into the room and it was one of the women from Sacramento who used to work in the California prison system and she was there and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, they're, I'm totally gonna get fired today because they're right. gonna find out that it was my, you know? Right. You still had that with I you. I still that had that for years with me. Like, oh my God, it was my fault. But she came up to me, she was like, didn't you work at so-and-so? And she gave me her card, like, call me if you need anything. And I'm like, oh my God, she's not gonna out me. But I carried that for so long. And I was talking to my supervisor at the prison one day and he was telling me how he had a person that died. And the difference between working with Homeland Security and working with the prison is like how supportive they were of him. Like, this is not your fault that this person did this. And so for me working at the prison, I'm like, any one of the mental health staff could have experienced. Because at some point you will. If you work in the prison system, at some point you likely will experience somebody coming close to or killing themselves. And for the mental health staff to be so, not everyone in the mental health staff, but it's almost like they were like, oh my God, you, like ostracized you. Right. Like you were a nobody, like cause somebody on your case though um, died. And it was just like one of the most horrific experiences that I've had like as a psychologist. And I was like, I'm never going back to the prison system. I don't care if they offer me $10 million. That is it. Right. I won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Can't blame you. So, you worked for ICE, and now you're in private practice? No, in private practice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And how's that going? What are you focusing on in private practice? So, interesting. So I have two focuses. I really work with women and couples. So women, like professional women, um, a lot of them like actresses, CEOs, and just the everyday girl who's like the secretary, whoever. I work with professional women. They're going through life experiences. Some of them are going through divorce. Some of them are like stay-at-home moms. They're like, my kids have left the house. What do I do now? I had a career before I had kids, and now it's been 20 years, and I haven't, you know, what do I do? How do I find myself? So I do that. And the other side that I do that I got specific training in was for fertility. So I had see couples or women and couples that struggle with infertility, and I do therapy with them. Mm. I do evaluations, consultation, like intended parent consultation. So if somebody wants to use an egg donor or an embryo donor, I meet with them. Like if it's a couple, I'll meet with the couple. And it's really an educational consultation like okay this is what to expect what are your expectations what if this doesn't work out what if it does how many rounds what happens to the eggs or the embryos if you have the baby do you donate them do you discard them like so we talk all about this we talk about do you tell your child Mentally do you disclose them, right? at what point do you disclose that's a consultation and now I'm moving into doing evaluations of um, surrogates like traditional surrogates or which is someone like if you pregnant and give gift me the baby right. like I'm just a surrogate mm. and then the gestational so if I put my egg in you and you carry the baby for me mm. so I'm starting to evaluate those people so that's what I do now let me ask you this so with the professional women now that you're working with and after COVID is there a through line or people depressed or is there something that people are dealing with today more anxiety right I see a lot of anxiety I think COVID, well, during the height of COVID, I think it was very heightened because there was so much uncertainty. Yeah. But I think now, still, as we are coming on the uh, other side of COVID, 
um, people are still uncertain about what do I do now? Mm. What does it look like now? Right. And that could be work. That could be personal life. Like, oh, I'm at, I'm getting to this age. Like, I, what do I do now with my life? This was what I thought was gonna was gonna happen, and now is this. Or you see a lot of um, family. Professional women, which is interesting because trauma can present in two ways where someone goes solely left and like they're in the system or like or someone can go the other way where they're like high achieving, high anxiety, Mm. overworking, like just no time for self. Because I have clients who like these girls are making eight figures. I'm exaggerating, but they're making all this and high powered CEOs and attorneys. They still don't feel like it's enough. Right, but it's like they're constantly like, I need to do this because, and I'm like, well, who are you trying to prove something to? Like, what, you know, so we're just getting to the basic of loving you, understanding you, and where is this coming from? Mm -hmm. So I deal with a lot of that, but there's a lot of anxiety in that. Now, do you ever think about lecturing, you know, or or speaking to groups? Because you're, I've told you this already, your TikToks are so precise so concise so articulate when you come on and you speak for a period of time i didn't know if you'd ever thought about that because the points you get across on tiktok are yeah. uh, are excellent and well delivered absolutely so the other side so i did um in the, like business psychology mm-hmm. which is like going into companies and this is what needs to change based on a mental health perspective. So I have done a lot of trainings and stuff, like facilitating trainings. So I think instead of just staying with just doing therapy and one-on-one, I'm going to go more into, that will be part of my business, but doing more like the group, like you say, talking to groups, speaking at different retreats and stuff like that. So that way I'm having an impact bigger, like more people. And what about the societal victim mentality nowadays? Like, explain. Like, what do you mean? Well, it just seems like everybody's blaming somebody for something. A lot of times when I work with clients, I always say, let's go back to, let's go back to the basic. Like, where's this thought, this mindset coming from? And so I would say, sometimes what you're experiencing is really happening, but sometimes it's a projection or based on past experience. Mm. Let's identify which one it is. And people can be resistant, but then they can open up when you really, if you don't come at them from like a judgmental space, but from more of an understanding, let's understand if this keeps happening, why is it happening? Because at some point we have to realize like, oh, I'm always in this situation. I was here when it happened. I was here when it happened. I was here. So what is my role in this? Right. Yeah. So we touch on that, and then I see a lot of aha moments because it's not the goal of it is not to say you did this. The goal right. of it is like we want to eliminate that or minimize that as much as possible. What do you have in your control that we can minimize that? How do we put that? How do we start to implement that in your day to day life? Right. Yeah. Okay. So where do you see yourself going? What is your? Do you have a vision? I do. I see myself being like Oprah. Um, hey, man. <laughs> mental health. Oprah. Nothing wrong with that. The Oprah of mental health. She does all right. So I see myself expanding my practice. Like you said, speaking on a bigger platform. Right. Because for me, like, for instance, TikTok, I feel like it should grow organically. And speaking on a bigger platform, meaning 
I did a thing with BBC a couple of weeks ago, so like that, like I did a podcast with BBC a couple of yeah. weeks ago. But just getting my message out there organically that getting out there to the world, I want to go to South Africa and do workshops and oh, great. go to a lot of the, the countries that don't have access to mental health and do workshops and teaching people like just some basic skills that they can mm. have to cope. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll say it again. Thank you so much for coming out today. It was a long time in the making. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Wow. We got here. And I'd like to thank Verity for for oh. being here. I you guys are welcome. Rebecca Lovestone. She's out there in the audience. <laughs> the audience. Thank and of you. course, Scott. Is there anything you want to promote? Your website? Your oh, yeah. So my website, my website is www.drwiata.com and on there you can see both my fertility and my um, Dr. Wiata. and then I have two Instagrams one is fertility counseling now for those that are interested in fertility and Dr. Wiata for both TikTok and Instagram so fertility counseling, counseling now. now is yeah, all one word. Now yeah, fertility counseling now is all one word. Okay. I have to say as well that you have a, on your Dr. Wayata Instagram, you have a really interesting link tree of all kinds of interesting things there. Yeah, I was looking at. Yes. So that's definitely something that people should check out too. Yes. And that's why I brought her. See? Thank you. <laughs> I do Verity with I a very things. cool accent. Oh, thank you. That's why I'm just here for ASMR purposes. <laughs> okay.